1: Well, Meg, uh, welcome to the RTA Podcast. Fantastic to have you along today. Uh, I think we've known each other for, it must be about six months now, and I've found your business really fascinating, and I'm excited about sharing your story uh, with our listeners. Why don't we just start off, Meg, tell us a little bit about what you're currently doing professionally.
2: Thanks for having me, Richard. Um, so professionally, I am the Director and Principal Consulting Psychologist of Carousel Consulting, just mm-hmm. my own consulting firm
1: okay great and how long have you had that for
2: we started in 2014 okay. i should say i started in 2014 the business looked very different then when i right. started when i first started it and has had some fairly seismic shifts in intent since then
1: i think that that is probably true for most entrepreneurial startups uh uh, particularly in this current environment I mean in the last six years what if we had we've had uh, you know all kinds of uh, uh, things not the least of which are our most recent excitement being COVID but uh, my business 11 and a half years old now it, it has been through so many iterations and changes as well uh, I, I understand completely so tell us a little bit about the kind of consulting work you do
2: Well, the majority of the work we do is around organisational change. So we Mm -hmm. we help organisations do change well. That's um, you know we are we partner with organisations to make sure that the people side of change is thought about, is uh, well intended, and is uh, planned and organised. One of the things that we know about organisational change is that you can have all the benefits signed up for that change that you like you know, you know what you're going to get out of that change but if people aren't using your change or haven't signed up for your change then you dilute all of those benefits really really quickly so the people side of change is really important and that's as we bring a different lens to it as well from other change managers in that we we are all psychologists as well so that's the main main part of our business but from there we help teams and individuals within business within businesses that are changing or just going through some sort of challenge we um help them sustain a level of resilience or build resilience if that's the if that's necessary Mm -hmm. um majority of our work is at a team level though so we um, support teams to build resilience and then maintain that resilience in a number of different ways
1: okay so uh if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that rather than looking at change over an entire organisation, it's within certain teams within that organisation?
2: Yeah, it, look, it's a little bit of both. Um, we've supported whole organisations through a massive transformation where there are a lot of moving parts. But I would say that um, and those, ch- those transformations can get a little bit transactional sometimes. And I think it's because... The rubber hits the road in a team at a team level. So you can change the whole organisation, but if you haven't got the teams aligned and you haven't got that figured out, mm-hmm. then um, then you can really do some damage to your transformation, or you can at least not see what you're expecting to see as a result of going through something like a, a massive restructure or a massive, you know, change in culture or a massive, um, you know, re- change in strategy or something like that. Um, our our probably the majority of the, our work happens at that team level for that reason and because we believe that that's where the real stuff happens within an organization
1: okay great and uh, and so who are the kinds of organizations that uh, you typically work with
2: we uh, ha- we work with uh, anyone who will work with us anyone who has a team however
1: right.
2: <laughs> just <laughs> to be clear we love teams of all shapes and sizes mm-hmm. Um The people that we have worked most predominantly with have been in the utility space, particularly the Mm -hmm. water utility space, um, and in the local council space as well, with a little bit of state government thrown in there as well. So. Tend to be larger organisations and uh, tend to have a change agenda of some sort. Mm-hmm. And we either involved in that change agenda at a bigger level, or we are working with the teams supporting them to follow along with that change.
1: Okay, excellent. Well, let's uh, let's come to all of that again a little later in a, in a bit more detail. But uh, I'm always interested in hearing people's backstory, so. Tell me, uh, you know, a bit about yours. Uh, where were you born? And tell a bit, mum and dad, brothers and sisters, and uh, early life. Uh, give, give us all of idea. it. <laughs> right all on.
2: of it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've got that long. Um. So I am. Uh, I was born in Brisbane and yeah. have lived in Brisbane uh, and now Ipswich in Queensland. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much all of my life. Mm-hmm. I, other than um, a brief stint at boarding school, because my parents are both teachers, and they were sent, uh, that were sent they they did a um, a stint on Thursday Island as right. teachers on Thursday Island. So I went to boarding school, and my the sister closest to me went to boarding school as well. And then my youngest sister moved up to Thursday Island with my parents while they she finished primary school there. Okay, so. And, uh- yes
1: and so when you were um uh growing up what did you think you wanted to be when you were an adult
2: oh i was very clear that i was going to be a marine biologist that was it i was going to i had this really clear vision of myself on um research ships or walking along the reef being Mm -hmm. a just being a marine biologist that's all i wanted to do um yeah i I think it's just one of those things I had it in my head and I identified with that vision of myself so strongly that it's all I could, thats all I was, that was just the way it was going to be. And so was um, there a and, lot of,
1: was there a lot of marine in your life? I mean, had you done diving and stalking and things like that? Or is it more of an abstract kind of dream
2: um, well, I think my my parents have a huge influence on me and my dad in particular, who is who's a science teacher and is also passionate about all things biology. Um, and I think at the time when I was growing up, he was doing his master's in botany, mm-hmm. but was, was passionate about marine biology. And I suspect, I mean, in fact, I know that that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. But to have someone who was always talking about it, who was always um, sharing bits of information and, you know, just b- basically we were a science-heavy household and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, arts and culture as well, but a science-heavy household and um, I think that was, that was a really big influence and that, you know, I just saw myself as part of that, you know, marine biology where it was the thing that I latched onto <laughs> and I was, that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life.
1: Have you watched that uh, movie on Netflix, uh, My Octopus Teacher?
2: I haven't, but so many people have told me about it. Oh, no, I and that. I really do love Octopus, so I have to watch it at some stage. <laughs> yeah,
1: definitely. And so when did the sort of shift happen that you decided, no, 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 I want to become a psychologist?
2: I remember exactly. the. I don't remember the date. I couldn't, you know, I'm not that good with details, but I had, I did a, science degree my when I left school I did a science degree at Griffith University and even though I was desperate to be a marine biologist I didn't quite realize at school that you needed to do chemistry at in um in year 12 to actually fulfill that mission so I went to Griffith Uni and rather than sort of doing marine biology specifically I did um science technology and society which is a, a sort of a And more of a philosophy, the philosophy and science, uh, nature of science, and I did that um, instead. And because you know, science as as an idea was really, I was really passionate about as well. So I did that, thinking that I would just do this degree, and then I would go into marine biology because that was my natural stepping stone. Um, Because there were the, the other science degrees, chemistry was a prerequisite. So I started that and then in my third year of that we had to choose electives and one of the electives that was available was psychology and I oh, just go and do this. It sounds, I don't know, sounds okay I guess, I don't know what it is and I think it was the second lecture and I just decided actually this is what I have to do for the rest of my life wow. um, and so I finished my, that science degree because I still loved what I was doing. And then I, uh, the very next year, I enrolled in first year psychology um, and started again basically. <laughs>
1: right, fair enough. I, yep. I did my undergraduate at Griffith University and uh, I remember back then, you know, you're a, young, you're a lot younger than me, but uh, they always had these weird names for their degrees and it was always sort of had a bit of a left kind of uh, social oh, thing. Yeah. So, so I did a Bachelor of Social and Industrial Administration, which uh, fortunately by the time I finished became a Bachelor of Commerce. What did you say yours was called again? <laughs>
2: Well, mum is a bachelor of science, but I was majoring in science, technology, and society. Oh, right so right. it was very much that sort of philosophical element mm-hmm. to science. You know, the you know what is this thing called science? And you know, right. I still have that book, "What Is This Thing Called Science?" Chalmers wrote all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were all a little bit lefty, you know. And there was the environmental <laughs> sciences, <laughs> environmental sciences um, faculty as well, which I used to just go and hover out because that's where all the people that were most like marine biologists hung out um and it wasn't until i was in that i discovered psychology that i sort of a lot i let go of that identity and <laughs> just focused on finishing and going on to the next thing which would take me closer to psychology
1: okay fantastic so uh you pretty much uh did your two degrees full-time back-to-back then
2: no um, once i finished the science degree i really felt that I could feel the messages from my parents that I actually did have to earn mm-hmm. an income of some sort right. so I started um I did I started working at uh the Queensland Museum in the education area so I started teaching kids about science and all mm-hmm. the other things that um that the museum did while I was doing my undergraduate so mm-hmm. for a lot of the uh, for a long while, I was doing studying full time and working sort of slightly more than part time. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, eventually the work um, got closer and closer to psychology and I had to cut down the, the study. And I and I ended up doing when I went into honours, I ended up doing honours part time. Right. Um, and then- because and- of that.
1: Yeah, okay. And then, uh, so obviously, then you started your career, you know, where and it it seemed to me that you had some time in HR and some time in consulting and some time in a uh, uh, a variety of different organisations How? to talk us through, you know, without getting into sort of, you know, the, the, the deep depths of it, you know, how did your sort of career unfold to the point that you wanted to start your own practice?
2: It is a good question, um, and I reflect on it a lot because it's something that I encourage other people to reflect on. And I think, I think it was a process of just growing up, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm a bit of a late bloomer for a whole bunch of things, but that particularly, um, in my career, particularly, I, I think I just liked working with other people. I just liked doing the thing. Um, and I've always loved work. I've always had derived a really strong positive sense of identity out of this thing called work. Mm-hmm. So I I did a lot of internal roles because um I also have a very strong, <laughs> believe it or not, I have a very strong need for security and all those sorts of things. But as I as I matured as a professional, and I started to realise that actually um, security and being risk averse and all those sorts of things were um, weren't actually the most powerful value that that I was striving for, and that really what I was after was freedom and autonomy to have an impact on the in the work that I was doing. That wasn't governed by a whole bunch of rules and a whole bunch of bureaucracy and things like that. So and I would I I know that I in the roles that I had I would seek to be that autonomous person. I would seek to be that person that had freedom and I think the the final role that I had before I went to um I started Carousel I think that it was just that that was the wrong role to try and seek that kind of autonomy and freedom. And I, I was I was just the wrong fit for that leader and the wrong fit for that organization in trying to trying to sort of have such an impact or have the impact that I wanted to have. Um, and so I had an opportunity and I took the opportunity and started carousel consulting.
1: When you say you had and, an opportunity sorry, Meg, when you said uh you had an opportunity, was something presented to you that was, you know, the gateway into starting your own business or do you mean more, I just came to a decision, this is the time?
2: Yeah, a couple of things happened at once. So I finished my PhD in organisational psychology. So that was the first thing. And then I think the conversations that I was having with my leader at the time were becoming... Harder and harder to get to a resolution, and so we both agreed that would be best for me to leave the organisation. And out of that, I financially, I was given a package, and I was able to go and um, and I was able to start. Carousel mm-hmm. and look, it wasn't something that I had ever considered before. In fact, I, f- I took my sweet time after leaving um, to actually get all the bits and pieces of starting a business ready to go. But I was encouraged by other people to say, you know, this is an opportunity, you should really do this thing that mm. we've all been saying you should do for a long time now. So, um, yeah, so that's no, I think um, without that, I might have taken many more years to jump um because of that risk aversion but um yeah the the being able to see the opportunity for freedom that was different to what I'd been trying to do previously was pretty powerful
1: great and uh I had a very similar situation myself uh i exited a business uh through uh some let's say some challenging conversations with my boss and uh and i had never any aspiration i'd never had it in my heart i want to be a business owner i think i just got to the point where it just was the right next thing to do uh Mm. and so when you started your business you know back in 2014 what, what was your intent at that time? Did you have a sort of a, a vision for what you were wanting to create?
2: No, I didn't. All I knew was that I wanted to do good work and creative work and on my own terms. What I actually thought I was doing was um, <laughs> finding an easier way for me to contract out um without having to go through an agency or right. um to go through because I felt like that would place constraints on me mm-hmm. as well so yeah i and i think if i were going to do to take the time again i would i absolutely with hindsight it's very easy to say this but i didn't ever think that i was starting a business i thought i was starting Myself as a brand that I could easily contract out to do right. good work and to, yeah, do what I do.
1: Right. So you were essentially creating a job for yourself.
2: Yeah. Uh, I bought myself. Yeah. But like, absolutely. Yeah. Right. That and, was, and I was sort of unashamed about that because I just thought, well, here it is. Here's the perfect thing. I get to do work in a really safe and risk averse way, but mm-hmm. I also get the freedom to say, you know, um, to 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 have the impact that I wanted to have so mm-hmm. yeah
1: okay and so um, you know you as you mentioned the business has evolved and changed fairly substantively over the last six years so what have been some of the pivotal moments
2: um, pivotal moments realizing that I worked better even when I was it was just me. I worked better when I was a part of a team, mm-hmm. and that I needed to be able to riff with people. I needed to be able to um, bounce ideas off people, and uh, uh, yeah, realizing that, and then um, having an opportunity to do a, to do a project for an organization that I needed to be able I needed help with. So I think it was at the point where I got offered more than one role and they were both part-time roles and I thought I could do this This Mm -hmm. That's no sweat I could do both these roles Mm -hmm. and so I did and then I got offered a third one and I thought I could do this but I can't do it as a role I could do it as a project though and I could bring someone I could bring someone in to help me and I just happened to meet um I just had just happened to meet a um someone from the master's program at the university, the same degree that the, the master's program that I did, my, my PhD as a master's combined with a PhD as well. And so I just happened to meet someone who was, who had just finished that same, um, that same program, but there quite a few years after. And yeah, we started, we started working together
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that's, that's kind of how it sort of all just happened a bit organically. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: And so how many people are in the team now?
2: So there's two of us full time and then there's two um, people who are casual who come mm. in and help us out. So they might be, I don't know, uh, one or two days a week um, when, when we need them basically. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we go for long stretches without, um, without seeing them and then other times we're like, oh, I've got this stuff that really needs to be done and I think it's just I know that I can trust them Um, They do great work and, yep, so we've got two full-time and then Mm -hmm. two two casuals.
1: Okay. And so an organisation is anticipating change and they would reach out to you to engage you prior or is it more a case of, oh, Meg, we're in trouble, can you come in and remediate, we need your help?
2: Um, We do both. (laughs) So... Our ideal, our ideal project is where we are brought in from the beginning and we can help be a part of the solution design. So that mm-hmm. means that we can encourage um, that sort of participatory decision-making. We can encourage um, stakeholder involvement in the design of the, the outcome and we can help manage stakeholder engagement and stakeholder, um, yeah, basically stakeholder engagement along the way. However, we have been brought in at um, the after the decisions have been made, and mm-hmm. once the implementation's about to go down, we have mm-hmm. been brought in then as well and asked to sort of really okay, they're not adopting and using the change like we thought. what should we do now? And so we've been you know we've been engaged to help with that mm-hmm. with that end kind of process as well.
1: okay, and so. What would be a good example of the former then? Uh, you don't necessarily need to say who the organisation is, but uh, you talk us through um, how you would become engaged, how these projects would roll out and uh, and the sort of value add that you bring to the organisation um, to enable them to get a great outcome.
2: So um, an example, and I won't name names, but an example would be uh, a recent restructure that we worked on mm-hmm. we were engaged from the beginning and so we advocated strong stakeholder engagement from the beginning by and that meant having stakeholders engaged in understanding the risks of going through this change but also and not just the Sort of the strategic risk but also the very practical risks like w- what happens to payroll what happens to what has to happen to change all of these things if we know this change is coming mm-hmm. and uh so that was a and that that was a really great project we uh, got through that change to the other side and um and, and not suggesting that everybody was completely happy with it but we certainly had people ready for that change when when the actual launch day happened. Um, and and it's just a case of, you know, the more opportunities you have to hear about a change, the more opportunities you have to engage in it. And the, particip- the, the style of participation that we advocate really does help people accept and accommodate that change as part of the way they think about the world and their work um, going forward.
1: And so are you sitting outside and making recommendations about what the organisation should do. Are you actually in the organisation driving this stakeholder engagement and communication process directly?
2: In that case, we were in the organisation and we were driving the stakeholder engagement directly. Um, Mm -hmm. That, you know, it wasn't a, it's, we're doing, we're working with other clients as well at the same time, but um, really we work best when we partner with people that are in the organisation. So, we might take a lead role in the change management stream of any project. Um, and we might sort of be seen as the change management stream leads, mm-hmm. but we would avoc- we would always advocate that someone from within the business is, say, the director of that of a working right. group of some sort. And we would work alongside them. Mm-hmm. To, it, I've rarely seen changes successful where an external organization has come in and driven the change and then left again the better way to go is to build capacity and capability within the organisation as you go um, to, have the, to have the impact that you want to have as a change manager.
1: It sounds like you've got a little bird singing beside you.
2: I do, I do actually. There's <laughs> magpies outside the window.
1: It's oh, nice. Bring a bit of a nature into the I,
2: I do what I can, Richard, to enliven the... <laughs> right in the conversation (laughs) oh
1: well you must be that uh not marine biologist but the biologist coming out of here so uh so what's an example of perhaps uh you know where a project that you've been involved in has uh run really really well uh and what were the the outcomes that were so beneficial and then perhaps what's an example also of a project that perhaps you've you've seen Uh, where it hasn't been handled well and what are the sort of negative impacts that there can come from that?
2: Yeah, I think um, so when... And we've been involved in quite a few projects where the outcomes have been really, um, you know, and nothing's, no change is ever completely perfect, but you want it to kick over into the threshold into quite good and... um, Change is one of those, change is one of those areas where you're always going to get variance in how people receive it and um, how people engage with the change. What you want to see though is that the majority of people are over the line. So I think when we've been involved in a project and we've been allowed to really have an influence over how stakeholders are engaged and how the the impacts of the change have been accommodated within the the solution design, we see high levels of engagement from um, people with the change at the end of the day. And that means it could be that you're implementing an enterprise level piece of software and it's rolling out across the entire organization. And where that doesn't go so well is when there's confusion, nobody's thought about what impact impact it's going to have on other things that people do. It hasn't been fit into the business processes effectively. It's just a new piece of software. Nobody's been told how they're supposed to use it. They might've had a training session from the vendor, but um, they don't know how to use it. They don't know what they're supposed to use it for. Whereas if you can engage people up front, then all of those things are thought about and all of those things are accommodated in your implementation. And, As psychologists, we also include, and this is the thing that we add to the the processes, we also include ideas like, what are you challenging about that person's identity by taking those tasks away from them and putting it into this big enterprise software system? Um, How are you changing the way they they interact with other teams? Um, Are you changing the nature of the work this team does now because you've got this enterprise software in place? It might be that you're not, but the fact that you thought about it and you and you um, asked the question meant that those people were given the opportunity to tell you and then you can accommodate that in your implementation. It doesn't necessarily change the solution design or what you're actually going to do or the piece of software you're going to use, but it changes the way in which you implement it. And I think that's ultimately that's um, far more better indicator of the success of the change than the perfect piece of software or um the, you know, the best practice, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think you take that example of a software implementation because that is something that people do, that organisations do regularly. And you think about what does success look like? Well, success looks like people are using this piece of software in the way that it's intended how do we get people there? Well, we work from the beginning and we get them involved and we ha- understand what the impact's going to be and we get them, we give them a voice as to you know, what we would do differently during implementation that would help them over the line to adopting and using this piece of software. So software is kind of like an, an easier example because there's a lot of change managers that work specifically with uh, software implementation. Um, Organizational restructures are very different, and mm-hmm. we, um, and that's where I th- you can see very stark contrast between those that have had um, not just a change manager, but a change manager who understands the psychology of people, who understands behavior and um, can interpret behavior and can collect data meaningful data along the way. Um, can have conversations and hold emotion in the room when you need to. Um, can facilitate workshops, even if they're even if they're um, hostile to some extent. Um, and we've we've done our fair share of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, you know the difference between um, change managers who can do all of those things compared to change managers who can color by numbers, who can roll out your comms, who can roll out your training, who can. Yeah, roll out the, the things that need to be done for people to accept a change. I think is um, is you can see you can see the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that yeah, and I, I think then the best changes we've done at that high-level transformation restructure work is we're able to then build we're able to then tap into people's need for resilience as they go through this change. Because no matter how big or small, you're affecting people's sense of stability you're affecting their um their sense of predictability and how things are supposed to go and so being able to encourage them to draw on their own resources and build resilience both at an individual level and at a team level is a really great way of supporting people through a change
1: and uh I as well Sorry. Just, i was talking to somebody on the podcast uh a little while ago, and they, they used this term, pre a Is that a term you use in your business?
2: It's not, not a term that we use in our business, but um, I'd be curious to know what it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it,
1: it's, uh, uh, I'll have to introduce you. But, uh, you know, he, a fascinating guy uh, uh, from South Africa, uh, and uh, he'd been... Um, in the infantry and then he'd come to Australia and he'd been a bodyguard and then he started this business. Anyway, it's a long and interesting story, but uh, resilience, resilience is uh, building a culture of resilience prior to it being required. Right. And, uh, okay. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I actually yesterday uh, did a psychometric test that uh, another lady that is uh, part of Champions for wanted me to do, and it was all about the ability to deal with ambiguity. And um, I think organisations are becoming much more focused on the fact that, you know, um, uh, I remember years ago reading this book, Who Moved My Cheese? Do you remember that book? Right. I
2: do remember that book, yeah. And, and, that, and
1: then that was sort of like the birth of you know, this sort of idea of nothing's going to stay the same and, and you've got to deal with the fact that somebody's going to be your cheese from time to time. And it's really now, you know, organisations are realising how critical this is. You know, I, I was in my earlier career involved in a couple of mergers, you know, when I worked for PO and worked for James Hardy and so on. And it was almost this sort of, let's just get two companies, stick them together and, you know, pray that it works out. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, it's a much greater consideration, and particularly as we look to the future, we don't know what the world is going to look like, you know, in the new COVID normal and with everything going on uh, internationally and nationally, uh, I imagine the appetite for the work that you do must just be you know, growing exponentially.
2: Yeah, I well, look... We can only hope, can't we? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I think to come back to the resilience idea, though, I think there's a really, it's a a philosophical conversation that has has emerged over time. And I think one of the things, absolutely, a culture of resilience is a thing to aspire to. But I think sometimes, and it's, you know, I, I I remember who moved my cheese and I think, there's, there's an argument to be had that says that it's there's trait-based reasons why people or there's something about the individual as to why they are better able to cope and manage and ultimately be resilient. Mm. And there's there's the, the alternative argument. The argument I prefer is let's just accept that people are going to be a bit iffy about change because ultimately we are we're basically we're we're shaking the foundations a little bit and we are going to um you know and and things aren't going to be the same and we know that change uses mental calories it uses energy so let's think about how we can actually skill people up and so we see resilience a little bit differently we see resilience as the idea that you know we all have resources we can access, and it's a it's a skill, it's a resource acquisition skill. So the trait based stuff and the you know who I am as a person and who I aspire to be as a person has minor advantages when you think about will have the skills that I have to access resources and the skills I have to both internal resources. So the the resources I've got to maintain perspective when things feel like they're overwhelming or the resources I've got to um, be able to um, diffuse from those negative thoughts and feelings that are happening because I'm worried about my job and it's started magnified in my head and I Um, I need to be able to separate myself from that somehow so that I don't get dragged along with my negative thoughts and feelings. So that all of those sorts of things are skills. We practice them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when you're starting to think about organizations and you're thinking about those sets of skills in organizations, I think you're really thinking about, well, people have to come to work and practice those skills, but they also have to perform Mm -hmm. and because they're coming to work to do a job. So resilience at work is slightly different again you're talking about people not only focusing on all those sorts of things but also focusing on continuing to do their job and continuing to perform so yeah I mean we we see resilience a little bit different it's a little bit like a you know, financial portfolio as well. You know, there's this this idea that you can put all of your eggs in one basket for resilience. Mm-hmm. You can focus on exercise. Exercise is going to get me through this. It's the only thing that I'm going to do that is going to, to help me cope. And I'm not bagging that. I personally use exercise a lot as my own resident, my own residence resources. But if it's the only thing you're doing, then uh, if the situation changes, if things mm. don't quite, you, know, you can't exercise or you injure yourself or what happens then? Mm. And so resilience itself is complex and it's dynamic and it responds to a context. And I think the idea that an organisation can build on build a culture of resilience is actually really encouraging people and teams as well um, to access resources, to know how to do that. And I think that, that to me is that idea of resilience is you're actually um, if i understood the term correctly is you're actually encouraging or you building the skills to access yeah, resources exactly. yeah mm. um,
1: and it's a sort of an interesting segue uh as there's a crack <laughs> of thunder outside my window um, oh yeah
2: mine sort of disappeared but I'm oh, really? yeah it's oh, still right. pretty dark it's... and cloudy yep
1: uh-huh. <laughs> um I'm really interested because it, it sounds so this ties in really neatly but I've never asked you any questions about, it, about the, the circus work you do so oh, yes because <laughs> you know in terms of you have to practice and you have to perform and you have to deal with ambiguity and uncertainty. It seems like a match made in heaven. How did you get sort of into the whole circus scene?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, when I, I had just had my second daughter and I was returning to work and I just didn't know who I was anymore. (laughs) Um, And I really wanted to get, I really wanted to start moving again and creating again and I didn't know what that was going to look like and then I just read this ad for a come and try circus and I thought that actually sounds really really fun Mm. so I went along uh with a friend and I was hooked from there and I've been um doing circus now since which would be about 2000 and 2010, I started doing okay. circus. Yeah. As an amateur, nothing professional. Don't get right. anyone excited about the fact that I have been in a couple of performances, but yeah. Um, yeah. You look, are and you
1: juggling uh, flaming swords whilst riding a oh, beauty cycle on the back of an elephant?
2: No, you know, as tries as I, I try, I try really hard to get good at juggling, but I right. am convinced it's witchcraft. I really am. <laughs> now, my 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 preference was for um, aerial work, so work okay. in off for the friends. ground. Yeah, you know.
1: right. But yes, it, not, a bit of trapeze.
2: Okay, yep. Yep. but, yeah.
1: I mean, but not mostly just,
2: wall dance. What
1: was that wall dance?
2: Yeah, wall dance. So where you're suspended in a harness off a wall, and you're doing acrobatics off the oh, wall, and okay. I used to do That on the wall of the powerhouse at ah, in Brisbane, yeah,
1: is that with uh, with Cirque,
2: that was with Volcano at the time, who were the ones that were in that space. Um, oh, right, right, but yeah, they've moved on since then, so I haven't done it for a very long time.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, but you're also involved in it, I mean, uh, steam circus and circus interest, and so on. It's not just you know, you know, having fun, uh, mm-hmm. also, you, you're very involved. Is it, how does that cross over in terms of your business? Because that's, uh, I suppose what I'm interested in, it seems as though there's a lot of lessons that it could carry across quite uh, well.
2: Absolutely. Um, so circus was a sanity saver for me. When I was finishing my PhD, I'd started a new job as, uh, and I'd just had a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I needed something to uh to work on for something to something to build skills on and to for people to be cheering me on and to have no judgment associated with it like who's going to judge you if you suck at juggling like Mm. the fact that you're doing juggling is uh and 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 that's what I loved about circus and the circus community and so the circus community comes from the great tradition of inclusiveness and that's what I really loved about it you know a middle-aged mother of two daughters um, in who's also a psychologist could just join in and start flinging yourself around in the air and you know it didn't really matter what it looked like it was probably pretty horrendous at the time but um, but I think that's and I think that um, creative opportunities like that offer people you know, there's something for everyone in circus. Mm. It doesn't, you don't have to be a juggler. You don't have to be, it, it comes from this idea that there's a place for everyone. Mm. Um, so we started Circus Hips, which because there are a couple of uh, companies out here that do a bit of circus, but there was no community circus. There was no non-competitive opportunity for kids who didn't engage with mainstream sports and um ballet and dance and all those sorts of things didn't engage with that as easily and circus was an opportunity for them to be themselves and still create and still learn how learn self-control and discipline and all the things you need to be to be good at circus so Mm -hmm. we started circus hip switch in 2017 and it's really gone from strength to strength and for me it's a, a volunteer passion the thing that I do that I love um, but we're starting to build a little bit of a social enterprise around it it's self-funded we have got a couple of grants for projects but operationally it's self-funded mm-hmm. and yeah we it's it it absolutely provides kids with a source of with us with a resource they can draw from for resilience and mm-hmm. our most our proudest program is I mean we're proud of all of our programs but we have a program called Umbrella Circus, which is specifically for kids on the autism spectrum, and then it's now since expanded to all kids with learning differences and you know abilities that that aren't mainstream. And so, and that's just gone from strength to strength as well as people realise that um, giving kids who do, struggle to sit in a mainstream activity, mm. giving them an opportunity to be themselves, to be understood and. All those sorts of things are going to be are going to be better able to handle the other challenges that come along.
1: Oh, that's excellent, Meg. Uh, uh, as a, a father of two myself, uh, just doing anything to get my kids off their devices is wonderful. But yeah, <laughs> there's that.
2: <laughs> we, we hear a lot of that as well. <laughs>
1: yeah, and so um, uh, coming back to your business, Meg. So uh, for people who are listening into this podcast, if they're interested in engaging with you and and learning more about uh, how you may be able to help them, uh, uh, how can they uh, engage and reach out to you?
2: They can um, send me an email
1: Mm -hmm.
2: uh, at my email address. I'm assuming you will give people my email Email. address. I can read it out if you want me to. Um, they can link in with me. I am I am increasing my activity on LinkedIn because right. I am increasing the uh, awareness of our brand and what we can do.
1: Because um, there's this but, crazy yeah. person named Richard who is telling you that you can Yeah, goes, I know. He's a task. I right know. Isn't he? Yeah, he's <laughs> a pain in the butt. Frankly,
2: um, they can. Uh, yeah, so LinkedIn and email are the best ways. They can also call me. I answered the phone. Unusually yeah. in this day and age, um, yeah, they can. It's probably the the best ways to go to get in touch.
1: Excellent. Well, look, certainly, uh, we'll put uh, those in the in the show notes and. Uh, uh, and if anybody's a bit unsure and they'd like an introduction to Meg, don't hesitate to ask me. And I'd very happily uh, uh, assist you with that.
2: If I She's an be... easy intro. She's... <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's
2: a... <laughs> She'll say hi to everyone.
1: She will. She's a lovely lady. And, uh, if I, and if I could be just a little self-serving for a couple of moments mm-hmm. here. Meg, uh, you've been involved with uh, Champions Forum now for, oh, what, about four or, four or five months, I suppose?
2: four months, yeah. And
1: uh, I'd be really interested in um, perhaps you just sharing your sort of thoughts about it and, uh, you know, uh, you've obviously remained involved. So what what you're benefiting from and what you're enjoying?
2: Um, I think oh, one of the things that I really love about it is that it's an intimate setting to talk work challenge, to talk the things that are really, um, you know, as you say, Richard, the pebble in your shoe. Um, I um, I have really appreciated getting to know the people that I've got to know in the various forums that I've been in. I have, you know, in, in particular, the people that have, when I've reached out, have responded and have really been supportive in what I've been trying to achieve um, in my business and I've got some great advice. I even got a sales coach through um, a Champions Forum—not in one of my forums, but from the broader Champions Forum oh, network—and okay. that's been that's been fantastic. Um, and just really stretching me in ways. And I think the first session was probably a bit confronting because mm. I, um, I maybe I wasn't ready. Oh, no, not ready. I'm always ready. I wasn't expecting the nature of the feedback, but you know, my, my philosophy is that feedback is a gift. And so I'll just take it. I take whatever it, whatever form it comes, even if I, you know, get a bit upset about it and have a cry afterwards. That's the, <laughs> the point is that it's feedback and feedback is a gift. Um, so yeah, not that I had to do that after the champions, Bank, can right. I just say, <laughs> It was just, um, so I, I think it was a bit confronting, but what I did learn was that I'm going to get as much out of it as I put in. So mm-hmm. I've um, made a point of getting to know or trying to get to know everybody who's in my own forum in in both of the, the separate forums I've been and just re- being really present, really mm. listening and really offering value um, because if you're going to do it, commit and invest and be present. There's no point in half ass doing it. It's, um, you know, it's too much value. There's too much rich kind of value in the other people
1: mm. um, well, uh, in the yeah. room. Thanks, Meg, for your kind words and certainly uh, for your fantastic contribution as well. Uh, I know there's been many people in your forum who have uh, been uh, very happy to get your advice about what's happening with their teams and change, etc. And so, um, uh, just before we wrap it up, Meg, uh, we've talked about uh, you know a lot about your business and your past, and you know obviously you love circus and you're a mum of two and so on. But what else does Meg like to get up to uh, when she's not at work? What's uh, What's your downtime uh, other than being a mum and performing in the circus? And
2: performing in a circus, <laughs> uh, and my downtime is is actually <laughs> it's cooking. Cooking. Yes, this guy just it's such a it's such an anticlimax, isn't it? When I say it. I, I love. Um, my latest obsession with Otalangi. I don't think I'm alone there. I think half the women in the world are obsessed with Otalangi at the moment, Yosem Otalangi at the moment. I love cooking. I love, um, yeah, I just love trying new recipes and I love feeding people and um, drinking wine and uh, eating. That's, that's basically what uh, I love
1: to I, I, I love cooking and drinking and feeding people, so <laughs> perhaps uh, we'll have to... Uh, uh, have a joint dinner party one day, but I've never heard. What is Otalengi?
2: You know, Yotam Otalengi. He's a he's a cook. He's an author ah. of a gazillion cookbooks. He's um, Israeli uh, heritage, but from um, from at, in base in London and. Ah. He's uh, his recipe, I don't know, it's just something about that Middle Eastern fusion thing, yeah. it's it's vogue right now, okay? Right. So I'm into it, yeah. Oh, and okay. Hedy McKinnon, Hedy McKinnon is my other hot tip for okay. salads, and yeah, so right. there you go, just well, hot cooking it. tips for today.
1: When you said, yep. water linguine or something, I thought, oh, that must be a <laughs> new type of pasta I have in here, okay
2: that was my pronunciation my apologies uh, no, and my apologies pretty. to sir otolenghi he's not uh, really a sir
1: but we'll have to we'll have to have a champions forum uh, uh oh cook off uh,
2: that'd be amazing well, what,
1: what, uh, what do you call it a um where everybody brings a plate uh
2: oh like a like a just a bring a plate isn't it isn't no, that what it's called
1: spe- there's a special word for it we're trying to get a mental plan not a
2: progressive dinner is that what you're no, thinking no, of
1: no uh because anyway. that would be
2: horrendous <laughs> Especially, especially for the people in Melbourne when we're, and I'm in Ipswich and you're in Brisbane. So, <laughs> sure.
1: well, Meg, look, uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for sharing uh, your thoughts about change and teams and circus and you know all of those wonderful things. Uh, been great My to have you along. Look forward to seeing you at the Champions Forum uh, very soon. And have a fantastic afternoon.
2: Thanks, Richard. that was fun. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.